Hello, this is Danielle Fisher. Welcome to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia. Today's discussion focuses on the multidisciplinary management of primary melanoma. We are fortunate to have several leading clinicians with us today from a range of specialties to discuss this topic and to understand the rationale behind their decisions. Facilitating the discussion today is Dr. Adrian Queck. Adrian is Skin Cancer GP at MIA and the Chatswood Skin Cancer Clinic. We also have Dr. Bruna Gouveia joining us today. Bruna is a dermatologist at MIA and has a special interest in non-invasive diagnosis and confocal microscopy. Associate Professor Jonathan Stretch is also joining us for the discussion. John is a surgical oncologist and deputy medical director at MIA and is an associate professor of melanoma and skin oncology at the University of Sydney. Welcome to you all and thank you for joining us today to share your insights from your own area of expertise on the management of primary melanoma. Adrian, perhaps you could start by telling us about the incidence of melanoma and why it's so important to diagnose and manage this disease early. Melanoma in Australia is actually the third most common cancer uh, after breast and prostate. And it's estimated that in 2020, there were over 16,000 new diagnoses of melanoma and around about 1,400 deaths from that. It's a potentially curable disease, but it needs to be caught early. It's it's eminently curable if caught early. And just by way of example, if it's thin, say less than 0.8 millimetres, you're looking at about a 98% 10-year survival. So it just highlights the importance of, of that. And I think it's also worth highlighting the important role of the the GP, the general practitioner as well, because they're very often the first port of call. And particularly, say, in in rural areas where in Australia you have roughly 7 million people living outside a metropolitan area. And if my statistics are correct, I believe there are 50 dermatologists to cover that population. So it just highlights the important role of, of the GP in that process. Adrian, the only other thing I'd add is just um, the age priority in melanoma in the 15 to 40-year-old age group, melanoma is the most common malignancy in this country. So that's another aspect of why this disease is so important uh, to Australia and for good outcomes are going to be related to early diagnosis and recognition. On that, let's talk a little bit about the uh, clinical presentation and clinical diagnosis. And I think, Bruna, in particular, you may have something to say about this. The most tricky uh, part of the diagnosis on melanoma is that this can look like anything. So we can have a just brown macule or a pink nodule, and both of them could be a melanoma. This could be a crushed lesion, an ulcerated lesion. There is no face. That's the main message that I would like to leave here. What should I take as a tip? Yeah, yeah. If there's no face, so I'd say first of all check if the lesion is new on your patient. So photos can help. Rely on memories is quite tricky. We don't recall everything that is happening in our skin all the time and on the back or areas that we cannot see, such as scalp, is quite hard. So uh, photos can really be useful to let us know if things are new. And second, if things are changing. So if you have a lot of moles and you are not sure if they are, you know, uniform or if they present few new features, you need to go to a doctor that has the total body photos available so we can compare the photos over the years and let you know if there is something changing. So for melanoma, the most important thing is to recognize a pattern 
on the skin of your patient. So usually I do that with a dermoscopy because it's a little bit easier to see the very small changes and features with that magnified lamp with specific lights. So this will show you exactly what you need to see on each uh, lesion, and if the lesions are following all this, uh, all the same pattern, they are considered benign because they are that. Uh, the, the signature of that specific patient. While if you have one specific lesion that is not following the pattern, we call this ugly duckling. And we know that this may be a skin cancer, melanoma or carcinoma. And I guess the important decision we need to make is whether to biopsy or, or not. It's important to diagnose a melanoma, but if you remove a non-melanoma skin cancer, then that's that's just as good. Yes. Yeah, so uh, clinically speaking, it's quite easy to see what is changing. Uh, but the problem is if it clinically it's not possible to tell, then we have a problem. And then the hemoscopy and uh, the other non-invasive tools will play a role to choose the biopsy area. Do you have any tips with demoscopy I- itself, how that helps you to, to work out what lesion to biopsy? The first thing is uh, we are concerned about lesions that has no pigmentation. We call these a melanotic lesions, uh, the lesions that will present as pink or red lesions in the middle of a pigmented lesion or sometimes without the pigmentation at all. So these lesions could be a carcinoma because they are more frequent, but they also could be a, a melanotic melanoma or even a Merkel cell carcinoma. So uh, it's just to keep in mind that pink red lesions uh, they may be just an inflammation or mosquito bite but they can also be a cancer so how can i make the difference i can observe the lesion for two weeks i can see if the lesion is going away fading away or if the lesion is progressing if the lesion is progressing then we need to biopsy so this is one clue the second clue is for uh, lesions that are blue and black. So we know that this combination of color, blue and black, they are suggestive of nodular melanoma. So on the hemoscopy, every time that I see uh, blue-white veils or any other structures that are blue combined with black, I may be talk about a deeper lesion. And this lesion, again, it's important to perform an excision biopsy if you can, so you can check the depth of the lesion. And the third tip that I would like to give regards uh, dermoscopy is for mucosal lesions. So every time that you have a mucosal lesion, it's quite tricky to know if it's melanoma or not. So pay attention on the color. So melanomas are usually the lesions that has three colors. And usually one of the colors will be gray. So if you have a very light brown pigmented lesion on the lip, you can follow up this patient with pictures, review that lesion in three months. But if you have a lesion with black, gray, and brown, then please just send direct to us because we maybe talk about something more severe than just a a pigmented macule. Bruno, just as I was listening to you, uh, talk then about all the information you can or discern from a demoscopy. I was contemplating back to the pre-demoscopy era and just the value add that demoscopy brings to, to in the primary care setting is, is, is enormous because with a dermoscope on a heavily pigmented seborrheic keratosis, one glance and you see the characteristic medial cysts, three quarters of the way there of being able to reassure the patient 
as but without that it was often you know a cause of consternation and might need to a biopsy that really doesn't need to be done likewise very dark lesions uh, i can recall pre-demoscopy when you actually got the report back it was um, some sort of a dark angioma you know a low flow of, uh, venous angioma the clinical clarity you get from demoscopy so i just can't agree with you more that uh, it's such an advance and everyone who's looking at skin um, on any sort of a regular basis must have a dermoscope in my view. I usually say that dermoscopy is useful because it's easy to identify the benign features. So every time that you don't find the benign features, you need to be concerned about that. So melanoma will not have one specific feature to look at, but the benign uh, lesions, they do. So, you know, you can have a checklist with all the benign features that you know, and then if you don't find them, you need to be concerned about melanoma on that specific lesion. And the second thing is, uh, in the pre-dermoscopy era, usually we were just using dermoscopy in the first beginning for the lesions that we were already suspected. Uh, so uh, we thought that, okay, clinically this could be a melanoma, let's double-check with dermoscopy. Now it's just the other way around. Exactly. We yeah. use dermoscopy before uh, <laughs> we suspect that clinically, so we can try to get them earlier, you know, like the, the idea of dermoscopy on every lesion and on, on, from head to toe is to make sure that we are covering and make sure that we are checking even the lesions that doesn't look suspicious at all clinically. And with that, we will take the early uh, melanoma guys. Yeah. Yeah, and I think examining every lesion, you're also recognizing the one that then doesn't fit the pattern. That's right. Which is, is, is uh, very important. John Bruner, we now have a clinically suspicious lesion and our priority is to establish a, a tissue diagnosis on that. Um, what, what information do we want to obtain from, from that biopsy? Well, Adrian, as you've indicated, the, what we want is a, a histogenesis. We want to know what this lesion, um, what, what constituent um, cells it comes from. And um, as we've talked about earlier, uh, melanoma has many mimics. So we're looking to see that is this a melanocytic neoplasia? Getting that diagnosis and making the diagnosis of melanoma, uh, discerning between a pre-invasive and an invasive tumour, that's very important. We want more characteristics. Um, Once we've got the diagnosis of melanoma, melanoma has a broad spectrum of um, biological uh, hazard and um, metastatic potential. So we want to know information including the tumour thickness characterised by the Breslow measurement um, scale, Uh, in things uh, such as histological evidence of ulceration because that's an important prognosticator. Also, these days we pay great attention to the tumour mitotic rate, the rate of cell division within the tumour. That gives us a good insight into the biological activity in the tumour and what potential risk the tumour represents to the patient. And from that risk profile, um, which aggregated we often call micro-staging, so as opposed to clinical staging, which is look at the lesion, look at the regional node fields and distant sites. Here we're going down in great depth into the histological features as is discerned by the pathologist. Mentioning the word pathologist um, highlights uh, something which I think is very critical. Um, The clinician has the great advantage of sitting with the patient, hearing about the lesion, and then more make a decision, I'm worried about this lesion, I think it should be biopsied. But then to make that decision, which is a very proper one, but just to write on the pathology form 
uh, lesion right shoulder is really under-equipping your pathologist with all the information that you've got. So if you have from the history that this is a lesion that's been present for five years but has doubled in size in the last few months, then I think it's absolutely critical that you share that with the pathologist. In the end, what they get is a piece of tissue fixed in formalin and it's, if you like, a frozen moment, whereas we get the great advantage of taking the history and even looking at it. Sometimes you can see these things have grown out from one edge and it's visible. And I just can't stress how important that is that um, the pathologist gives that information to. And also uh, degrees of suspicion from um, the uh, dermoscopic appearances likewise can be very helpful. I think we can all do a lot better in making this a two-way conversation with the pathologist because the histopathology of melanocytic lesions is quite a challenge sometimes and um, we've got to make sure that the pathologist gets all that information. And you know, nowadays we can just share images with the pathologist. So it's quite easy to send the clinical picture and the dermoscopy picture. And even if I'm targeting a biopsy with dermoscopy or with confocal, I can tell the pathologist where the biopsy was taken from. So if I send the picture and I mark the lesion and specifically the area where the biopsy was taken, then the pathologist can do a better dermoscopy and, and histopathology correlation. And also if I'm mapping a lesion and I want to double check the margins, so my question for the pathologist will not be a diagnostic question, but also just to check the margins and the management for that. I can also share with him my dermoscopy and my confocal mapping image. And I think that these make the conversation two ways, because then it's not only us asking them to tell us the margins and the subtype and the methodic rate and uh, the histological features, but also we giving them uh, some uh, inf- extra information. So we're giving them um, as much information and as much tissue. Pathologists always want as much tissue as they can. What biopsy techniques are available to us and what would guide you uh, as to what type of biopsy you'd take, John? It must always be considered in the clinical context, particularly the site and size of the lesion. I will often uh, propose that if a clinician is looking at a lesion and the history and the clinical features make them seriously contemplate the diagnosis of melanoma, then I would say that the clinician should ask themselves, well, I'm thinking that the differential diagnosis includes melanoma. Why am I not doing an excision biopsy? Because it must be remembered that if you're doing anything less than an excision biopsy with just two to three millimetre margins, that you're only sampling the lesion. And then we, we know that these lesions can be very heterogeneous. And so sampling just one part of it of a lesion might give you totally misleading diagnosis in terms of what's going on. If it's a lesion that's evolved in a pre-existing nevus that was benign but only portion of it is malignant, you could miss the malignant portion. I think that's a very good premise to start with. That's not to say that there aren't very good reasons why other forms of biopsy may be appropriate in particular circumstances, but getting the whole specimen, if you can, uh, the whole lesion to the pathologist is a a pretty good um, way to start with any lesion of concern. Thanks, John. Um, Bruna, you mentioned targeted biopsies um, just a moment ago. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? 
is just for us to be aware of two things. First of all, melanoma can have more than uh, one color, as we were talking about. So if there is like a, a melanotic component, which means an area with no color, sometimes we just miss that on the biopsy, you know, because we, we usually try to target the pigmentation. And then when we draw the excision, we just include the brown or the black area. And sometimes we don't pay attention that there is like a whitish or reddish area close to that. And sometimes the deepest area, uh, the invasive component of the melanoma will be on this amelanotic component. So this is what I want to stress. When you want to draw and, and plan your excision, please just include that amelanotic part. I guess you're referring to a situation where perhaps uh, a complete excision biopsy is not possible and you need to perform some sort of partial That's biopsy. right. So um, if you need to prioritise, if you need to choose, you can use, first of all, the colour and, again, try to prioritise the regressing area of the tumour because I think this could be tricky and make sure that you are covering. And the second thing is nodular lesions. So palpate the lesion and if there is any infiltration, that area cannot be missed out. That area must be included on your sample for the pathologist. So imagine that I'm talking about a 20 centimeter lesion, you know, a lesion that is very huge that you cannot send the whole lesion for the pathologist. So try to cover the pinkish area, try to cover the elevated and the infiltrated area, try to um, get more than one biopsy. So we call these target biopsies when you do like two or three or four samples of the same uh, large lesion just to cover different aspects of that specific lesion. So with thermoscopy, sometimes you see mm, there are dark blotch areas there, that maybe that follicular openings will be covered, let's target a biopsy there. Then you go for the other clues on the other areas as well, always guided by your dermoscopy. If you have confocal microscopy available, even better, because confocal microscopy has a cellular resolution. So there was a study comparing the target biopsies by dermoscopy and by confocal, and confocal is more accurate to guide your biopsy because you are seeing the cells. Shave excisions have their place, but if you have a suspicious pigmented lesion, you're suspicious of melanoma, do you think there's a place for a shave excision or, you know, a deep shave, what's sometimes referred to as a sorcerization? Um, do you have any comments on that? So usually my target biopsies are punch biopsies on these specific areas because I want to show uh, the upper derms and, you know, the, the deep derms, if I can, for my pathologist because my suspicious is melanoma. So I really need to know how deep this lesion is going. So if you do a shave biopsy, sometimes people think that they are covering the upper derms, but it's quite tricky to make sure that you are especially in thick lesions or ulcerated lesions. You don't know exactly which level you are. I know that there is one technique that is called sulcerization, that uh, the definition would be a deep shave. So you make sure that you are removing the whole uh, skin. But again, you are not sure how deep this tumor is going. So you may misdiagnose the depth of the lesion if you go for shave or sulcerization. I would also always prefer to do the excision and if I need to do an incisional biopsy and, and the elliptical is not possible, I would target punch biopsies on, on that large lesion. 
Thanks, Bruno. I think it's quite a, a nice summary there. You know, a complete excisional biopsy. If that's not possible, then targeted biopsies, and you'd be very reluctant to ever do a, a shave biopsy. I certainly agree with that rationale. A situation that I often find myself in as, as a surgeon after uh, the patient's been sent to me for treatment is someone's had a shave biopsy and the Breslow thickness recorded in the shave, say, you say it's 0.6 of a millimetre, but it's incomplete at the deep margin. You really want to say, well, should this patient have a sentinel node biopsy? Are they a candidate for a discussion about that? You could even go back and re-excise what's left of the shave biopsy wound, but then by the time there's inflammatory change and whatever in the histopathological assessment of that, we're really left in a very great level of uncertainty as to what the true thickness of that tumour was. And that patient then is also left with a great element of doubt and anxiety as to whether or not they should have actually had a sentinel node biopsy. Because sentinel node biopsy these days, it doesn't just provide prognostic information, it is also a potential um, pathway to accessing modern systemic therapy. So getting a proper characterization of the tumour in all its micro-staging features, its thickness, its mitotic rate, and having that as accurately as possible has big consequences these days. And um, so I think our discussion has, has hopefully highlighted that. Um, no, no, I'm wondering uh, at the other end of, of the spectrum, would you ever consider skipping that biopsy? You've got a very obvious clinical lesion. You have high suspicion of melanoma. Would you proceed straight to a, a wide local excision, taking a, a wider margin and not do that narrower margin biopsy? Well, there are a couple of things here, Adrian. First off, um, melanoma is the great member and it works both ways and sometimes something that can be you can be so clinically confident of being melanoma isn't. Secondly, if you are right and, and it is melanoma, then you want to be able to confirm that there is sufficient um, grounds and rational basis for doing a sentinel load biopsy. So that excision biopsy as is recommended by the guidelines, two to three millimetres, get the diagnosis, get chapter and verse on the biological potential of that tumour and then sit down and have the next discussion with the patient uh, fully informed about the merits of potentially doing sentinel node biopsy or if the patient's elderly and got lots of comorbidities, maybe doing the variant which is sentinel node evaluation. And by that I mean you do lymphatic mapping and ultrasound um, assessment of the draining nodes. It may be that the best thing is to monitor those nodes. But always I think we go back to this premise uh, which is highlighted in the all the international guidelines throughout the world is understand the tumour first, small margin um, excision biopsy, then sit down and put together a management strategy for your patient. If you were to proceed to straight to that wide local excision, potentially you'd be jeopardising the accuracy of your Exactly. Lymphatic mapping. I know many people think, well, look, this is a scary tumour. I'm very anxious for my patient. And they have a concept that, well, if I take a wider margin um, that, and I do it very, very promptly, that's of benefit to the patient. Getting the diagnosis promptly, yes, that's important. And getting it, if you get the tumour out with that two to three millimetre margin, then you've bought time for considered discussion, both between that doctor and, and the patient. And you've also got time to then talk to other colleagues out to about referral on and putting together a really structured, thoughtful management plan. 
and remember that you always can ask for a second opinion, especially for pathology slides. That's so true. I have patients coming from the, the outback uh, area that sometimes it was like a borderline description on the histopathology report. We are not sure if it was a, a straightforward melanoma. Sometimes things are not straightforward, right? They are uh, in the gray zone between the black and white, between the benign and malignant. And this is real life. So when it happens, we need to review these slides. Sometimes we need extra cuts. Sometimes we need a uh, specific stain. And uh, this can be really useful, especially for lesions that we're aiming to get really early. So remember that if you are really suspecting that this could be a melanoma and the histopathology report is just, you know, borderline, you are not sure what you need to do with that patient, maybe the first step would be ask for a second opinion. Send these pathology slides to a place where we have dermatopathologists to look at and ask for extra cuts, you know, and then check it again. The same thing with the margins. You know, sometimes we are not sure uh, if we excised enough and why the excision was good enough. So, again, if you're not sure, just ask for a second opinion on the pathology for the margins as well. But just to reinforce that, once you've got one, two, three millimeter clearance around the lesion, you have time on your side. There is no urgency to do the wider excision. Uh, it's worthwhile highlighting that wider excision beyond a complete excision biopsy does not influence survival or outcome in that sense. What it's purpose is, is to reduce the rate of local recurrence. And that is something that is measured in months and years uh, or isn't an urgent thing in terms of um, getting a, a survival uh, advantage for the patient. Thanks, John. I think that really does help put things in perspective, that time frame, because often there is that worry when you have that malignant diagnosis that something needs to be done immediately. Having the time to, to consider the options and, and knowing that time frame is very helpful, I think. Especially if you need the sentinel lymphonode biopsy, right, Professor Stretch? Because then you can do the wider excision with the biopsy. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Well, if you've had a, if you've, if someone's gone ahead and we touched on this scenario earlier, with it's a worrying tumor, um, they're sure it's melanoma, and the primary care clinician will be right. But if you do a one or two centimeter excision, you've really precluded accurate lymphocentigraphy for that patient and we've lost the opportunity which is the most sensitive. I mean the capacity of well done sentinel node biopsy um, where you do lymphatic mapping and then procure the, um, the map sentinel node, that is the most accurate way we currently have of identifying the metastatic phenotype or metastases with these tumours. Um, no PET scan can resolve and find the tiny burden of tumour that can be found in a sentinel node, which is, can be as small as you know, five or ten or a dozen, a dozen cells. And the pathologist commonly find that burden, but it tells us so much about what the metastatic capabilities of that that tumour is. It it guides our follow-up protocols when we would image and stage, and then also the discussion about what might be available with with the new systemic therapies. uh, You've now got the patient, he's had uh, an appropriate excision biopsy, he's had an intermediate thickness melanoma, he's had the wide local excision performed and uh, a central node procedure. So you've finished your work in that regard. Where, where to from here? Now that we've got to this point in the patient's care, Adrian, I think one of the very important things is to make sure that we construct a management plan going forward where the patient 
takes the way in which we've hopefully educated them to, as to what melanoma is, what the risks are, and then we go forward thinking about a couple of factors. One is, well, what further follow-up do we need just to make sure that there's no further trouble with this melanoma that they've just had? A, sentinel node, a negative sentinel node biopsy is a very good prognostic indicator and hopefully that patient is at low risk of getting recurrent. But it's not guaranteed by the sentinel node. They can still uh, develop potentially a hematogenous um, dissemination, although in the, in, the, in the sentinel node negative patient that's pretty relatively uncommon. They could also sometimes present with um, in-transit metastases despite a, a negative sentinel node. So we need to talk to the patient and make them aware of that, but not, of course, make them over-concerned. So it's a conversation about getting them aware of those issues. The other imp- very important thing is saying, well, they've had one melanoma. So their genotype in combination with their environmental exposure has added together to give them, um, let them develop a melanoma. So that combination of factors doesn't go away and they, we know, are at least four, five or more times at risk of getting another new melanoma. So then we've got to look at other aspects relevant to the patient. Family history, what's their skin condition like, how many moles or nevi do they have, are they just barnal or common nevi or do they have multiple dysplastic nevi. So really what we need to do is develop a comprehensive risk profile assessment for that patient which is in part the history and um, the other factors we've been talking about but it's also a dermatological assessment of their skin and then thinking well there's going to be, it's appropriate to have some surgical follow-up for a period but they also need to have a skin surveillance strategy and this is then where the discussion comes well is it someone who lives in the metropolitan area are they rural how great is the risk of their skin and then the logistics of that and perhaps bruna would comment on how she uh, feels that should be managed so uh, the follow-up depends on the risk of the patient. So we calculate this risk with our tools. Um, again, in the melanomarisk.org.au, we have some tools available to let us know the risk of that patient to have a second melanoma, for example. And then based on that risk, or if you don't want to calculate that, you can also have your uh, checklist based on guideline uh, risk factors and decide and discuss with your patient um, how high risk or low risk this patient is. And uh, if the patient is a high risk, it's better for him to uh, be checked by a specialist uh, doctor because we need more tools to make sure that we are not uh, missing the second melanoma, such as uh, monitoring, the three-month short monitoring has an accuracy of 98% to detect melanoma. So if it is a patient with, I don't know, 300 moles, it's quite hard to detect that on a GP uh, clinic and with the the three months short monitoring you can be more accurate. Uh, secondly, you can use the total body photos to help you. Usually we match them once a year but again we can use that on a follow-up visit in six months or, or three to four months just to make sure there is nothing new or changing in that time frame. 
The other thing that usually I recommend my patients to do is to combine uh, my specialist uh, follow-up with the GP follow-up, especially if they live far away from me, because I think that uh, the GP can also uh, check them uh, in alternate visits with mine and make the the journey, the long travels, a little bit uh, less frequent. And again, if we have a a suspicious lesion, uh, it can be just immediately removed by the local uh, doctor. Uh, Usually what we do, we change pictures, uh, we exchange information on apps and and photos that can be shared by medical tools. And with that, we advise the local doctor when cut out or not. But the most important thing is to let them know that they need to be followed up. The low risk every one or two years, the um, medium risk could be every six months and the really high risk every three months. So we've talked about um, various biopsy techniques there. Uh, Just wondering if you have a a comment to offer on a subtotal biopsy, the situation where a partial biopsy has been performed and then you're left looking at at a lesion that uh, is still there but some of it's been biopsied. Yeah, well, so that that situation um, certainly happens a lot and even if a very large proportion of the lesion um, has been biopsied. My particular concern is if the... if it's a melanocytic tumour or lesion... And, and I suppose, John, we're thinking particularly of the case where it's not a, an obvious florid melanoma. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. 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 But so, so a good proportion, but not all, of the, the lesion has been biopsied. And let's say the reports come back and says it's borderline dysplastic nevus. So it's a melanocytic um, lesion. And we know from the proportion that's been examined, virtually all of it, that it's not a melanoma. We can relatively safely infer that. One of the things I think is worth contemplating is what then happens to that residual lesion and that wound. So you have then a, a process of healing by secondary intention and... When you go back and look at that lesion, that patient comes back because they're now tuned to having regular skin checks or whatever. When that subtotal biopsy lesion is looked at in six months or three months or nine months' time, you can often find that the biopsy process has caused um, a very irregular growth um, and indeed potential regeneration of part of that melanocytic original lesion. And the concern there is that appearances can subsequently become very uninterpretable, really, and that there's even a clinical term for it that's used also by the pathologist where it's re- they're referred to as pseudomelanomas or histologically ambiguous lesion because it's a mixture of the remaining lesion and what's resulted from the healing process. And that then leads the patient on to be comfortable, both the patient and the doctor want the lesion excised, And then the pathologist has got to try and uh, tease out what is the residual lesion and what might be a regenerating nevus. And so I guess it begs the question or gives good strength to the argument that a complete excision biopsy obviates that potential scenario and those potential ambiguities clinically um, when the area is looked at again and indeed for the pathologist um, when they re-examine that subsequent re-excision. So I think you can see that I am a strong proponent of a narrow margin, complete excision biopsy of any suspicious melanocytic lesion wherever possible. 
Um, John, so we've now got the biopsy result um, and um, we know it's a melanoma. What's the next step? Can you take us through your approach and, and rationale now that you've got this patient here and you've got this melanoma result in, in front of you? The usual story is you've got a pretty anxious patient and usually in oncology there's one or two or more uh, anxious members of family and there's almost certainly been um, a trip to the computer and to Dr Google. So I think one of the most important things I do in the first period I spend with the patient is totally go back to the beginning and define what melanoma is and put their pathology report in context with that. Because, I mean, you'll often get a pathology report that says malignant melanoma, brackets, in situ, and the patient has been reading about stage 4 disease and they don't really understand that what the in situ characterisation means. So I think that is absolutely critical. And then it's so common just to see the relief come down for a good proportion of patients when they realise that they've got a disease, it is melanoma, but it's fortunately early detected, very low hazard end of the spectrum. So I think that is a critical thing to always start off if you're going to be running the definitive management program and um, constructing that for the patient to make sure that they've got it in proper perspective. Of course, sometimes it's the other way around and you do have to make the patient aware that this is a serious problem and we're going to have to do some fairly extensive investigations and staging and the like. But getting that line of dialogue, that getting that parity of understanding is very, very important. But even if they are stage four, we have some good news to give them nowadays, right? Absolutely. And so even if you do end up having to be in that discussion about traditionally high risk, I can say to patients that the outlook for patients with tumours like yours has at least quadrupled um, in a positive way um, because of the new systemic therapies. And so almost always you can have the patient leaving with a good degree of confidence because that's appropriate. You want to go into your therapy informed but also with proper understanding that even in the most worrying um, scenarios, very positive outcomes are, are possible. In the other part then of the, after we've had that conversation, which is a very important one and, uh, and it, it, it's always also important even if the patient doesn't come with someone to try and encourage them even potentially to come back for another consultation with someone because the patient, there are plenty of studies that tell us that all of us can recall you know, 25, 30% at max of what's been said and often when we're sending them off for another investigation, um, maybe a lymphocytogram or whatever it's going to be, for them to bring someone back so that the two sets of ears to listen to the next part of the conversation is also very valuable. Of course, the other things then that make sense in the first consultation, of course, clinical examination, history, and also understanding the patient's comorbidities. They might have had um, extensive uh, cardiac problems. They might be on anticoagulants and the like, all of which are going to influence or potentially um, direct where we go in terms of surgery, particularly sentinel node biopsy and stuff like that. John, um, you know, you've done that, you've had your initial cup of conversations. What's now involved in, in that definitive surgery that you need to consider? So for the vast majority of patients who have come and had an excision biopsy and we are we either going to 
be doing some form of definitive wider excision plus or minus a sentinel node biopsy if that's indicated according to the characteristics of the primary tumour and we've already discussed the importance of getting as much information about that. Historically, surgery for melanoma has a fairly um, awesome reputation and people are aware that in an era when we didn't have any drugs that worked for melanoma, there was a history of doing uh, wide excisions and they're often skin grafts and the like. A lot of research and clinical trials with excision margins have led us to a point these days where a very large majority of melanomas can be treated in a really straightforward way. A vast majority of the wounds can be just sutured together. It may or may need a, a flap, which is just a local rearrangement of the tissue. But the number of skin grafts that we do these days, certainly compared to a decade or more ago, is vastly less. So the surgery for melanoma is very commonly pretty simple undertaking, very commonly a day surgery procedure. And I do, and many of us working in the field, commonly do it just uh, with a combination of some IV sedation, intravenous sedation, and local anaesthetic. If they're going to have a, a central node biopsy, that will usually mean this is general anaesthetic, but it can still commonly be done as a day procedure. So it's um, the morbidity of definitive treatment for melanoma has become much, much less and much more palatable. As a GP, you may f face these patients after John consultation, for example. <laughs> so they receive the, the bad news that they are stage four, they will need wider excisions and uh, sentinel lymph node biopsy or, you know, uh, scans or whatever, like the extra um, imagings uh, that you need uh, to stage or to treat or to see if there is any surgery to do on that metastatic uh, lesions. But then in the end of the day, they just sit with you because you are their doctors, like the GP, and they want to listen to your opinion. And uh, sometimes it's hard to catch up as a, a GP, which are the new systemic therapies and to understand all of that. So because I am not an oncologist, I just want to give like a tip of what I usually do with my patients. I try to explain that the lymph nodes can be treated with surgery, but they can also be treated with the systemic therapies. Sometimes the systemic therapies can be done before the surgery so they can shrink the, the tumor on that specific lesions and then we go uh, for for surgery on the lymph nodes as well. So, you know, we can try to make them understand there are more options nowadays. And as John was telling us, uh, because we have uh, early diagnosis uh, going on, now the surgeries are smaller because we have systemic therapies going on. We need less uh, surgeries on lymph nodes as well. So, you know, I think it is good to have these positive uh, perspective to give to your patient when he's facing this bad news because otherwise he'll just go home with the first information, with the first sentence, you know, and it looks like a, a death sentence sometimes, like, oh, you have a melanoma. So usually I prefer to start the conversation with, like, I have some good news as well. I very much agree with that. Emphasising the good news is important and in particular when we're doing sentinel node biopsy and the patient we've determined from looking at the risk profile, the primary tumour, that there's a, a risk profile that might be maybe 10% or more of there being nodal involvement. But if we do that sentinel node biopsy and, and they come back 
uh, as a sentinel node negative patient report, again, being able to emphasise that, and it's terribly important that you do, you just don't say, oh, the nodes are clear. What you say is that we can look at historical series and we know that the prognosis curves for sentinel node positive and sentinel node uh, negative tumours are vastly different. And that's just like walking out with five kilos less on your shoulders. And it's very important to reassure that. Not that it guarantees the patient, because we always have the issue of, uh, of hematogenous spread, which can happen even in the face of a negative sentinel node. But it's a matter of really guiding the patient as much as we possibly can to a positive mindset and um, getting them engaged on what's going to come next, which is uh, understanding that they need to be ever vigilant because having had one melanoma, they're at increased risk of getting others. John, perhaps we should have uh, should have asked this question a bit earlier, but in that situation where you know you are the GP, this patient comes to you, you've done the that initial biopsy, you know it's a melanoma now. How do you decide what needs to be referred on, and perhaps if you're in a, a rural sort of setting, what could be treated more locally versus what needs to be referred on uh, to someone else, and then potentially for a, a sentinel node uh, assessment. Adrian, that's a great question and my first answer to that is pick up the telephone. If you have any, if the managing clinician, primary care clinician isn't quite sure, certainly all the melanoma centres in Australia, they're very happy to have that conversation to help guide you in managing your patient. Australia is a glorious but very big country and we certainly don't want um, patients with low risk 0.4 millimetre Breslau and they've had an accurate excision biopsy travelling vast distances to have what really can be done with 10 mils of xylocaine adrenaline in a good GP surgery. But the reassurance to make that decision and let them, the GP proceed along those lines, which might be their inclination, but they've just got a bit of doubt, they, obviously they can refer to the guidelines, but if they want to personalise it and have that direct discussion, um, I know at MIA... We are all very happy to take that call and I know in, in other states the, the major melanoma centres are also very happy to do that. Nowadays we also have a website that is the melanomarisk.org.au that you can calculate the risk of having a sentinel involvement so you can double check if your patient is a high risk and he potentially needs this biopsy done. You may need to refer this patient to MIA while if the risk of uh, lymph node involvement is lower then uh, the wide excision could potentially be done locally. Of course that depends on how the reconstruction will be done, if it's a large area and if it's a cosmetic area, you know, if it's acro or genital or mucosal lesion, sometimes it's not easy to do that locally as well. So you need to put uh, that in context and also the comorbidities of your patient. But balancing these uh, criteria, I think you'll be able to find like a a middle solution. John, I guess harking back to a point we made earlier, if you do have that um, complete excision biopsy initially, that narrow margin excision biopsy, then you do have quite a lot of options with time to work out what you're going to do next. I'm just wondering what sort of time frames, can you give us an indication what time frames you have you would have in mind? Adrian, you're, you're quite correct. You do have time. You certainly have time to send an email 
place a phone call, wait days or whatever. Perhaps the biggest pressure in some ways is the fact that the patient is anxious and they're wanting something back because they haven't got the the perspective. And and I think think actually these days, um, particularly the the patient's remote, one of the things that a new innovation in the post COVID era is potentially a teleconsult. So um, again, a patient living remotely, they've had an excision biopsy, a way of one both setting up the definitive care process to reassuring the patient is actually to have a, have a teleconsult. And then the discussions can be in the pre-COVID era, you'd have people, businessmen who had, had an excision biopsy and they had some serious work commitment that, and if they'd had that excision biopsy, we'd very happily plan their surgery for two weeks, three weeks at a time. Um, then at the other end of the spectrum, there were people who had some family event, a, a wedding or a trip or a cruise. And again, after excision biopsy, scheduling that so that it didn't totally upend their lives was and is still entirely reasonable and safe, just so long as that it's been discussed and then that the planning and scheduling um, can be put in place. Okay, so let's um, look at look at a, a case study here that might help to tie some um, themes together. Um, Jim's a 55-year-old farmer who presents to a, a very busy rural general practice for something else entirely, different matter. But in the course of the consultation, his GP notices a 20 by 20 millimetre, very atypically pigmented lesion on, on his shoulder. Uh, clinically, it's quite suspicious He doesn't know when he can return for an excision biopsy and he's very reluctant to take any time off work. Um, Bruno, what are are the biopsy options here? So if it's clinically suspicious, I would say that the option is an excision. You need to draw the elliptical excision on that specific area with two to three millimeters margins. Uh, remember, uh, just to, if it's just very clinically suspicious, you may need to palpate the lymph nodes on that specific area. So if it's located on the shoulder, uh, remember to palpate um, the supraclavicular area and the axilla area. Uh, sometimes you just go for ultrasound on that specific specific areas to make sure that these lymph nodes are not involved. And then uh, you go from there based on what you find on your uh, biopsy report. And again, if it's clinically suspicious, you make sure that you write down on the histopathology report that it may need extra things that rule out melanoma as your first diagnosis and hypothesis. So the pathologist will make sure that there is no melanoma there. In this particular case, though, um, it just was not possible to take an excision biopsy. The, the patient wasn't able to um, allow the time for that. And uh, a punch biopsy was taken. Uh, so in this scenario, I would check the histopathology results to guide me. But again, uh, if on the pathology I could confirm it was a melanoma, we will need to remove the whole lesion to make sure which brace low, which th- thickness of tumour we are talking about. On the punch that's taken, it, it, uh, it returns as a 0.5 millimetre superficial spreading melanoma. Uh, John, where does that uh, leave us now? Yes, well, we've now got the diagnosis of an invasive melanoma. The, the problem is we don't know how representative that is of the definitive microstaging, that 0.5 millimetre from the punch. So on the shoulder, if I'm, uh, what I'm thinking is 
do I need uh, and does this tumour deserve a sentinel node biopsy? At that site, what I really would be thinking of, well, the potential drainage could be to the axilla, to our clavicular lateral base of neck um, nodes, or even triangular intermuscular space nodes. So uh, if I just was to contemplate the morbidity associated with surgery there, I really want to have good justification and a rational basis for doing it. So what I'd um, hope to do when I saw this patient is explain that it's an, a partial biopsy. We've got incomplete characterization of the tumour and I would, hopefully as a surgeon, I'd be able to do a, an excision biopsy of that still under local anaesthetic in the rooms and get definitive microstaging. And then that would let me... Um, plan um, what's rational next. In this particular case, though, the patient proceeds straight to a, a wider local excision, 10 millimetre margins taken. Um, the pathology now returns showing that there's a nodular area that's 1.2 millimetres deep. So it's been upstaged from 0.5 to 1.2. Where does this now leave us? Well, this is a scenario which unfortunately we see too often and it's not a very easy scenario because the patient, if we use the, the, the risk calculator um, to determine what this patient's risk of having an involved sentinel node for a 1.2 millimetre tumour uh, at this age group, it, um, it's in the order of 11 or 12%. So that is you know, a, a worrying uh, risk of having metastatic uh, disease in, in the regional node field, but we can't really accurately determine where the first draining nodes are because a wide, quite a large excision's been done now already, and it's likely that accurate lymphatic mapping can't be done. So, uh, in this situation, we would probably resort to ultrasonography, untargeted or unguided, of those fields that I mentioned, the axilla, the supraclavicular fossa and, and the um, perhaps the region of the uh, triangular inter intermuscular space also. Um, and it does very nicely highlight the importance of having proper characterization of the primary tumour. Yeah, so I think the main take-home message on this case study is that if you go wrong in the first beginning and you do a partial biopsy that could be easily being replaced by excisional biopsy, as John was uh, mentioning, this patient must have an excision. Uh, so if you did a partial biopsy, you may need an excision. So if it comes back as melanoma, please remove the lesion with one to two millimeters margins before going to the wider excision. Otherwise, you try to fix one mistake, making another one. So if you did a partial biopsy and then you go for wider excision, you did two mistakes <laughs> together. <laughs> you excised the wrong area and then you guided your final uh, surgery based on that partial excision. So, you know, if you took a, a partial biopsy and this showed melanoma, you need to go for an excision with two to three millimeters margins to make sure that you check the whole lesion. And then with the correct Breslow, you go for a wide excision with sentinel lymphonode node biopsy or just a wider excision. But it's not possible to take this decision if you just had the partial biopsy done. Thanks uh, for joining us here, John and Bruno, today. Very helpful. Uh, few things that we've covered today, I think, are just the importance of maintaining that high index of suspicion for any changing lesion 
um, particularly if it's out of character with the patient's other lesions. Um, and then in that case, wherever possible, um, that narrow margin excision biopsy, complete excision of the suspicious lesion is going to maximise the chance of getting the information that we need to make uh, a good management decision uh, and, and to minimise the disturbance of disturbing the, the lymphatic um, mapping. Um, where that's really not possible, we discussed dermoscopically guided targeted biopsies can be useful in, in some limited circumstances. And we've also discussed the importance of central node um, biopsy uh, and assessment uh, and the importance for prognosis as well as the role of uh, systemic therapy that that could lead to. And the we, we did mention too the online central node risk calculator is a very helpful resource in that regard. Uh, and the other thing that we did touch on too was the importance of risk stratification uh, of our patients and the appropriate follow-up based on the degree of risk that they have for a, uh, a second or subsequent primary melanoma. Thank you, Adrian, John and Bruna, for sharing your expertise with us today. You have been listening to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia and made possible by unrestricted educational grants from Pierre Fabre, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis and Merck Sharp and Dome Pharmaceuticals. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a colleague or friend and be sure to leave us a review. For more practice-changing education, sign up to our Melanoma Education portal at melanomaeducation.org.au. Thanks for listening.